I'm going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 again this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. If you're new to the valley or new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is work through books of the Bible and unpack what God has said to us there. And uh, we've been working through the book of Mark, and we've seen that Mark's goal is persuading us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If you don't believe me, you can check out verse 1 of chapter 1, and he's going to tell you that right therein. Last week, we began looking at this particular section of Scripture, and we only got through the first five verses, and we spent a lot of our time contrasting God's delight in life versus evil's goal of destroying life. And so we fleshed out what it means to be made in the image of God, saying, being made in the image of God means all people have inherent value, independence of their utility or function. Being made in the image of God means all people have inherent value independent of their utility or function. And we explored how God's role as creator and the sustainer of life helps us understand what it means for how we as Christians ought to interact with life and death issues such as abortion and euthanasia. If you you missed it, you can go back and listen. It's up online somewhere, but I'm going to summarize it for you right now in kind of a, a sentence, the best I can anyhow. It's that Christians need to engage life and death issues with sympathy, compassion, humility, gentleness, wisdom, and tact, having the goal of loving the people dealing with these issues well by pointing them to Jesus. We talked about loving and valuing, 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 sorry there, loving and valuing all people like Jesus, who cares even for the least of these even for the crazy, naked, unclean, demon-possessed guy. God's word reminded us once more that God cares for us, and he proves it by dying on the cross for our sins and defeating death with his resurrection. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus still a storm with his word, and today we're going to see Jesus bring peace to a man with an equally violent storm raging inside of him. Jesus will bring harmony from chaos. He'll restore what's been destroyed. And our one big thing this morning is the same as it was last week. That's Jesus frees the enslaved. Our outline's the same too. So maybe you're, you're learning it a little bit now the second time through. It's a man from among the tombs. Something called legion. The fear of the people and the work of a saint. A man from among the tombs. Something called legion. The fear of the people and the work of a saint. Let's pray together and then get into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've extended to us. We thank you for that great exchange that happens on the cross, wherein Jesus takes our shame and gives to us his glory. Lord, we thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died so that we could enjoy life together with you. Yet even now, as we enjoy that life, we admit we are not perfect. Indeed, we are very sinful and needy people. And so, Lord, we ask that you would once again meet us in our poverty. That you would give to us all that is necessary for life and godliness in your word. Help us to hear your voice this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read the first five verses once more together. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Remember, Jesus is in an unclean, man, unclean land among an unclean people, and he meets an unclean man. It's not the place your typical Jewish boy would go. 
He steps out of the boat, and the man from among the tombs meets him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out, always cutting himself with stones. So Jesus and his flotilla had made their way through the storm to the other side and met this man who was being tormented. We learn that he's living in a graveyard. He's constantly crying out and cutting himself. No one can shackle him or chain him, yet he remains a prisoner. Satan and demons in the structures of evil are very real and they are seeking to destroy the garrisoned man. But Jesus values the demoniac's life and so he begins breaking the chains of social isolation, physical abuse, and spiritual alienation by exercising his authority over something called legion. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That's the demoniac. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion is the largest unit of a Roman army and at full strength had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 6,000 soldiers. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's 6,000 demons up in this guy, but that only there are a great many inhabiting him. Right? He's possessed by a whole bunch of demons. That's the point. Verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The point here is is pretty simple. It's that that Jesus is omnipotent and authoritative. More, More simply, the pericope shows us that Jesus is the boss. Jesus has power and authority over the thousand demons that are possessing this man. And upon seeing Jesus, Legion runs to him because he knows that he cannot run from him. Legion sees Jesus unveiled. He knows who he is. He recognizes him as the son of God. And he does what people do when they're in the presence of God. He falls prostrate. He begs. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, don't torment me. Luke's account is helpful here, I think. He notes that Legion begged him not to be banished into the abyss. And and the abyss is a place of spiritual confinement before the final eternal judgment. Jesus then grants Legion permission to enter a legion of pigs. Why? To be honest, I'm I'm not exactly sure why he, he allows the demons to go from this man into a pig, but into the bunch of pigs. But I think William Lane is helpful in providing a, a plausible explanation. He says this. First, Jesus recognized the time of the ultimate vanquishment of the demons had not yet come. His encounter and triumph over the demoniac does not yet put an end to Satan's power. It is the pledge and the symbol of that definitive triumph. But the time when that triumph will be fully realized is yet deferred. It must await the appointment of God. Therefore, 
Jesus allows the demons to continue their destructive work, but not upon a man. The second element is related to this. Jesus allowed the demons to enter the swine to indicate beyond question that their real purpose was the total destruction of their host. In other words, it's not yet time for the demonic to be ended completely. It's not yet time for Jesus to put an end to all evil. However, he will not allow Legion to continue his, their assault on the man that's made in God's image. And so he sends them into the pigs, wherein Legion brings about their total and complete destruction. Make no mistake here, Jesus is in control. He's the one with authority. He's the boss. And when he reveals himself, the only response is submission. Therefore, we see even the demons submitting to Christ. Friends, Jesus has revealed himself to us. He's validated his person and his work and his power in the resurrection. So once more, I implore you this morning to submit to his lordship. It's not a sorrowful submission, but a joyful one. And it's true freedom. Evil enslaves and seeks to destroy life. And Jesus is the giver of life. He is the restorer of the broken. He's restoring this man. But not everybody enjoyed that. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Sitting there clothed and in his right mind. This is a picture of salvation for the formerly demon-possessed man and for you and me. See, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are like the demoniac. We are unclean. We're physically alive, but we are among the tombs spiritually. We're unchained, but enslaved by our sin, making attempts to hide our naked shame beneath rags. Not one person in this room is perfect. Not one of us has lived up to the standard of God's holiness. All have fallen short of God's glory and all deserve the death penalty for their sin. Hear me here. You're not good enough to save yourself. If you think you can be good enough to merit peace with God, then you have grossly underestimated his holiness. No one is in heaven because they're really a good person. Hell is filled with people who are really good people, but don't know Jesus. It's by grace alone that salvation comes. It's by grace alone that we have peace with God. And we're all wicked and we all need that grace. I heard a story recently. I was listening to a sermon by uh, Tim Keller. And he was talking about how uh, when you're young and you're like 10 years old, you think that you're a pretty good person, kind of got things together. And then one day you turn 15 and you look back on your 10-year-old self and you think, man, my 10-year-old self, what a mess. I didn't even watch the cool cartoons. I didn't have things together. But now, now that I'm 15, I know a little bit about something. Know a little bit about life. I've, I've arrived. Says, and, then, and then you turn 21 and you look back at your 15-year-old self and say, man, my 15-year-old self, what a mess. That guy, whew, my 15-year-old self was a jerk. What a jerk. And then it takes a little bit longer time, turn 30 and look back at the 20-year-old self and say, man, my 20-year-old self, 
oh man, didn't know anything. I didn't know anything back then. Man, I was such a jerk. Same thing happens when you turn 40 and 50. Eventually one day you're you're 60 or 70 and you're looking back on the 60 version of yourself and you say, man, the 60-year-old version of me just had nothing together. What, What a jerk. He says at some point you have to realize that maybe you're just a jerk. But his point's this. Is that none of us ever arrives or attains to this perfect holiness in our lives. We're never going to outgrow the gospel. We're never going to outgrow our need for grace. The gospel is the ABCs of the Christian faith, but it's also the A to Z. It's how we become Christians and it's how we live the Christian life. And we need to preach the gospel to ourselves just as much today as the first day that we heard the gospel of grace. Every day we need to remind ourselves that we need God. and That we can't depend upon ourselves. Grace isn't just new each and every morning. His mercies aren't just new in the morning. They're new all day. And as Christians, we ought live in them. Sin is evil. It destroys life and it requires life as its consequence. The only hope we have for peace with God is the blood of Christ. Anyone who comes to God and says, look at all these good things that I've done. I was a good person. I I gave to charity. I punched my ticket. I was at church on Sunday morning. They're not getting in. No one is saved, save for those that plead the blood of Christ alone. Lord, I don't deserve relationship with you. But Jesus has taken my punishment on the cross. Therefore, I give you all of me. Therefore, I can enjoy life together with you. Jesus has died as your substitute. He was your stand-in on the cross. And he gave everything for you. He didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. Therefore, we should give all for him. We should pursue him. He was our substitute and he gives to us his righteousness. Makes us right with God. When we simply by faith place our faith in him come to him and trust him with nothing in our hands. God, I have nothing to offer you, but let me receive your mercy. We would have no hope if Jesus hadn't loved us and didn't love us when we are or were unlovely. Thankfully, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves this demoniac, even though he was unclean, uncool, unclothed, Ugly, even though he was a smelly mess. I mean, it doesn't say that he stinks in the text, but I'm just using some logic there. I feel like he had to have stunk. He lived in a graveyard, no clothes. I don't know. He loves the demoniac when he's ugly. And he loves us when we are ugly. His love is so great that it transforms those that receive it into absolute beauties. Have you received his love? You can receive his mercy and his grace right now. All you have to do is turn from yourself and your sin towards him. It's called repentance. Repent of your sin. And when we repent of our sins, Jesus takes from us our rags and adorns our shoulders with robes of radiance. 
when we place our faith in Christ, he pulls us from the grave, removes the sands of sleep from our eyes, flushes away our folly and furnishes us with wisdom. When we follow Jesus, he clothes us, puts us in our right mind and invites us to sit at his feet. Are you sitting at his feet this morning? Church, let us let us love like Jesus. Let us love wildly. Let us love generously. Let us be kind to the jerks of the world. Because we too are jerks. We too know what it is to be a sinner. We too know what it is to receive endless love, mercy, and grace. Therefore, let us be those that love wildly and love generously. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I I beg you. Sit at his feet. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The people are afraid. And they beg Jesus to leave. Why? I think it's because they fear the power and the authority of Jesus. They fear the implications of someone this powerful. In other words, they're scared about what this Jesus will mean for their lives if he stays. Also, while Jesus himself didn't destroy the pigs, the people certainly blamed him for the loss of the pigs, right? And it was a huge monetary loss. It's funny, though, Jesus and Mark, they pass over this, this obvious plight without any comment whatsoever. Right? The, the, their whole economy of the, the herdsmen has been disrupted. All these pigs are dead, and that was how they made their living. Which I think suggests to us this. That in the economy of God, the rescue and restoration of one person is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more important than any financial circumstance. Jesus values human life, even the life of a marginalized homeless guy. Values it much more than money or anything else in all of creation. The herdsmen and the people, though, they don't share this belief. I conclude this because they don't really have any other reason to send Jesus away. They don't value the demoniac's life because if the stampede and the destruction of the pigs is omitted from the story, there's really no reason for them to drive Jesus out of their region. See, these herdsmen and the people that are around, they ought be rejoicing, giving thanks. But instead, they're concerned about their economic loss. The people beg Jesus to leave because he's challenging the status quo. He's challenging their idols. He's saying your money isn't the most important thing. People are the most important thing. They fear his power and they love their pigs. If Jesus stays, they know that he is going to change everything. And so they ask him to leave. I think this is true of most people that we typically respond to Jesus with with two types of fear. There's an awe-fear, awe-filled 
reverential fear, which is a joyful astonishment that overwhelms us and leads us to joyful submission in the form of worship. There's another type of fear. That causes us to desperately cling to our idols. Causes us to try and protect our false gods by rejecting Jesus and his claim on our lives. Fear has a a funny way of revealing to us what we love most. Your fear will reveal who or what you worship. When you're confronted with the person of Jesus, he demands that you turn from all false gods, all other gods, whether career or money or family or comfort or routine or tradition or whatever. He demands that you turn from your false gods and worship him alone as the one true God. Quick sidebar here, career, money, family, comfort, all those things are not bad things. They just make terrible gods. And when we take God's good gifts, which are meant to increase our love for him, and lift them to the place of God, we've made good things become God things, and that's just it's not the right thing to do. It's bad for our hearts. So that's, that's worshiping the gifts instead of the gift giver. It's missing the point. The fear of the people reveals that they love their capital assets most, that their pigs are more valuable to them than the salvation of the demoniac. They're not willing to worship Jesus. And they beg him to leave. To follow Jesus is to be changed. Jesus reorders our priorities and places himself right at the top. So let me ask you, have you dismissed Jesus because you fear the changes he will make in your life? Have you rejected Jesus because of what following him requires? Are you a lukewarm Christian that just punches your ticket on Sunday morning but isn't really changed by Jesus? Are you like the herdsmen begging Jesus to leave you alone because you don't want to give up your favorite sin? Friends, you ought to turn from your sin Let his love cast out fear. Sit at his feet. You know, nothing worthwhile is ever easy. And indeed, following Jesus means dying to yourself. However, when you experience his grace and are united to him by faith, you're going to discover what it is to truly live. Jesus will indeed make you into a new creation. In fact, he'll introduce you to your true self. An absolute beauty, an heir to heaven, and all the riches therein, a friend of God. The people here are afraid, though, and they want rid of Jesus. And so Jesus is putting his boots on and he's packing up his bags and he's going to leave. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus is leaving. The man that he set free asks him as he's stepping onto the boat, I picture it. Lord, can I go with you? Can I follow you to the ends of the earth? 
And Jesus says, no. It was good for me to come over here and set you free, but I just don't like you that much to be on a boat with you. Now, Jesus tells them no and to serve the kingdom of God by ministering in his own community. A little bit of irony here. This former demoniac becomes the first missionary that's sent out by Jesus. And remarkably, he's a Gentile sent to Gentiles. Now, some of you are going, the wheels are turning, you're going, wait a minute. Hasn't Jesus been telling everybody to shut up about who he is? Why does this guy get to tell people about Jesus, but these other folks, they're not supposed to tell, Jesus, tell people about Jesus? And soon, in the future, we know, if you've read ahead, in chapter 7, he's going to tell other people, hey, command to secrecy or this messianic secret. Don't tell anybody who I am. So why is this man told to tell? I think uh, Edwards, as one of the commentators I read, is right in suggesting that it's related to the banishment of Jesus from this region. Even though Jesus will no longer be physically present in this Gentile region, he'll still be present in the message of the gospel proclaimed by his followers. This new missionary is to tell what Jesus has done for him. And obedience for this saint is different than the obedience of others. See, obedience often has different expressions. Obedience has different expressions. God has gifted and called different people to minister in different ways, in different places. Thus, obedience in our lives means living as God has assigned us. So your obedience might look different than my obedience. God has called some to be artists and some to be politicians, some to be farmers, some to be lawyers, some to be businessmen, some to be mothers, some to be entertainers. If the Christian that's called to politics instead says, I'm going to pursue farming for him or her, that's disobedience. It's sin. But the Christian that's called to farm and pursues farming, for them, it's obedience. Our obedience has different expressions. And we ought live as called, live as we've been assigned by God. I point that out to say this. God has sovereignly placed you where you are and uniquely outfitted you to share the gospel in your context. You do this by offering your work to God as worship. Or if you're retired, offering your retirement to God as worship. Which hopefully means doing whatever it is you do with excellence. And by telling those that come across your path what God has done for you. That the telling part is important because we need to preach the gospel both in word and in deed. If we don't actually use gospel words, then we make it look as if our lives are the result of something we've done. We're pointing to ourselves as a savior rather than Jesus. The point here is to show and tell about Jesus. Show and tell about Jesus wherever it is you work, whatever it is that you do, whatever sphere of influence you find yourself in. Your obedience is to show and tell about Jesus. But choosing your work, like not everybody here is supposed to go into full-time ministry, right? It would be disobedience for many of you to do that. So live as God has assigned you. He's given you passions for a particular reason. He's made some of you passionate about art. made you good at it. Pursue art. That's what God wants you to do. Bring him glory by doing what you've been assigned to do, which typically lines up with your passions.
points to show and tell. Non-Christian, we tell you about Jesus because we love you. Because we believe in Jesus to not share our faith is actually a declaration of hatred. So I ask you to listen and consider Jesus. In conclusion, Jesus sets captives free. Apart from Christ, we are all as spiritually enslaved as the demoniac was physically enslaved. But Jesus is the good king. He's the good king that became a pauper so that true peasants like you and me, the jerks of the world, might inherit his riches. He came and died so that we might sit at his feet, be clothed with his righteousness, think with his mind. Jesus, the Son of God, was tormented by mocking voices, isolated from his loved ones, driven outside of the town, shackled to the cross, and laid down among the tombs. See, he became captive so he could set captives free. And he did so when he burst forth from the walls of death on the third day. Jesus had power over the storm. His power over the demons. His power over life and death. He's the God of life. He gives salvation. And he changes everything. He changes how we value, how we submit, how we love. Changes our priorities and our purpose. Has he changed you? He sets captives free. So I exhort you. Leave your cell this morning. And by faith, be made free. Come to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gentle and kind words to us. That even though we are sinners and deserve your wrath and punishment, that you treat us with kindness. That you endure our sinful hearts with patience. Again and again, we fail to live godly lives. And again and again, we find new mercy. Lord, we thank you that you forgive all sins. That you've called us to yourself. That you call us friend. We thank you that once we've been united to you, we get to see our true selves. You call us Christian. Followers of you. Lord, be our delight this morning. Help us to remember the robes of radiance with which you have clothed us. And to sit at your feet. And learn from you. And to become more like you. Jesus, you are our treasure this morning. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.